You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Bob Hughes. It's okay. You can talk in this church. You can say, hi, I'm fine. Thank you. We don't need to be stuffy, right? Hey, my name is Bob Hughes. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I have the privilege of speaking this morning. Uh, We're going to kick off a new series on the book of Psalms, and uh, we're calling it the Summer of Psalms. (coughs) And uh, this morning, we're kicking things off with Psalm 1. Uh, Not only is Psalm 1 the, the first book in the Psalter, Uh, But it, along with Psalm 2, which we're going to hit in two weeks, lay the foundation not only for the whole book of Psalms, but but also core themes that are found throughout Scripture. So let's jump in together. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 1, either in your Bible. It's right in the center if you flip it open, or on your device. If you don't have uh, a Bible or a device, you can turn to page 254 in the Bible that's under your chair. Feel free to grab that and take that home with you if you like. It could be a gift from us for you. This is God's word. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord, we just ask, let your kingdom come in greater measure uh, in Grace Church, both in us and through us, as we engage your word and live out the implications by your grace. Lord, we ask this for your great glory, for our great joy, and for the reign of Christ in the world. Amen. All right. We're going to look at uh, the word narrative a little bit. Uh, The word narrative has become an increasingly popular and common word in our contemporary vernacular. We hear it used in the news all the time and engaging current issues, current events of the day. And whatever side of the debate people may be on, uh, whether it's Trump versus the Democrats or the LBG, TQ, I've got to remember to add, there's always a new, uh, new, new letter I've got to add in there. The LBGTQ versus the straights or the woke versus the unwoke. Everyone is fighting to own the narrative around the issues of the day. And a narrative is simply, it's a story. That's all that narrative means. But it can have a profound impact 
as it creates a setting where our individual life stories find their meaning within the grander meta-narrative of life, right? Several years ago, uh, we've got five boys, and uh, we had a, uh, a boys' trip, Hughes boys' trip to New York City. And uh, we had an absolutely great time. And uh, as we arrived in LaGuardia, we're heading, you know, down, down, heading through the airport. I'm going to go grab an Uber and head into the city. And I look over at my, uh, my number four son, Robbie, who's part of the church here. And he's got these massive, I mean, he's got these headphones on. You think it would hurt his neck. But he's got these headphones on, and the tunes are cranking. And, uh, and I poke him, and I say, what are you listening to? He says this. Whenever I go someplace exciting, I like to pretend that I'm part of a movie. And the, mu- and the music sets the soundtrack for the scene that I'm imagining. <laughs> I, I'll, I won't tell you what I said to him at that moment, but uh, I guess it's all about who the story's about, right? Who's the hero in this story? And uh, so... But that's a great example of how cultural narratives work. The story's always playing in in the background of our lives, isn't it? It's setting the context. It's telling us how to interpret our moments within the greater storyline. It's the movie that that runs in our heads, right? And cultural narratives are, this is an old school example, forgive me, but it's like the old Schlitz beer commercial. All, all, all of the, the boomers will remember this one, but here's what it says. You only go round once in life, and you've got to grab all the gusto you can. <laughs> well, I mean, in one way, you listen to that, thing, that is really stupid. No, we don't go around. You know, we, in the same way that we don't listen to our, our own hearts, we speak to our hearts. We don't want to just listen to the culture. We want to speak to the culture and say, no, that's stupid. No, we don't just go around once. No, we don't live for our own selfish gusto. No, that's not who I am. That's not how I'm living. But we've got to understand that that one narrative affected an entire generation's definition of what the good life is. People lived within that stupid commercial narrative. So we need to learn to to regularly ask ourselves, what is the storyline playing in the backdrop of my life? Do I even believe what it's attempting to tell me? Am I engaging the narrative? Is it the story of my life in Christ and in God's coming kingdom? Or is it a story of some worldly values based on some stupid beer commercial? Leslie Newbegin, who, he's dead now, but he was a, a, a missionary, pioneer thinker in the whole issue of gospel and culture, says this. And I'm, please listen, this is a great quote. The way we understand our lives depends on one question. What's the real story that my life story is a part of? I'll say it again. The way we understand our lives depends on one question. What is the real story that my life story is a part of? Psalm 1 is going to present to us the real narrative of the world from God's perspective. It tells us that there's 
two kinds of people in the world. There's just two kinds of people, just two. It's the righteous and it's the wicked. And of course, the world's narrative wants to say, no, no, hold on a minute. There's a third guy in there somewhere, and he's probably sort of like me, right? He's, he's a moderate guy. He's, he's not wicked. He's not, you know, you don't swing it that hard, but he's also not one of those religious extremists, right? And thus, the battle for the narrative. Which story do you trust? Which story do you live by? And Psalm 1 tells us a lot about this, this righteous man. And I'm going to say the word man a bunch this morning. Please know that it, were, it means mankind, human, male and female. It's speaking to all of us, okay, ladies and gentlemen. But the Bible tells us a lot about this, this righteous man with, with really minimum details about the wicked man. And the assumption is this, that whatever the righteous man is, the wicked man isn't. We can assume that. So we're going to look at four points this morning. We're going to look at the premise. We're going to look at the practices. We're going to look at the product. And then we're going to look at the power. So let's, let's go for it together. Let's look at this righteous person. The word righteous, it simply just means to be right, to be righteous, to be right, to be in right standing. And in a very basic way, it implies right standing with God, right? And it implies right standing with others, our relationships. But, but it's also bigger than that. It implies right alignment with reality, right alignment with reality. Not only that, right engagement with what matters most based on reality. And God's commendation of this righteous man is, is amazing, okay? The Lord refers to this guy as the blessed man, blessed, blessed, however you want to say it. He's a blessed man. He's a happy man. He's a person overtaken by God's goodness and grace. Literally, the open phrase says this, if we could get the, the, uh, the, the spirit of, of the phrase, it's, oh, how fortunate you are. How fortunate. So point one, the, the premise of Psalm 1 is this. God wants us to know that this blessed, happy, fortunate life really exists. It really exists. It, it's there. It's, it's real. And it's available. It's available to you and me. God wants you and me to experience and walk in this blessed, happy life. And the thought of that is uh, amazing grace, isn't it? That's crazy to live that kind of life. I mean, really, when, when is the last time any of us read Psalm 1 and looked at that opening and thought, oh, yeah, that's me. No, we're, it's somebody else. It's somebody else that's, that's in that condition. But God wants us to live a blessed, happy life. And point two, uh, point two we want to look at the practices that make this man who he is. 
And the Psalms tells us that there's things that, that this guy doesn't do, and then there's things that he intentionally does. Well, what doesn't he do? Well, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. We, we tend to think, you know, like when, when you think of the counsel of the wicked, I don't know about you, but again, I'm a boomer, but I go back to old, uh, you know, Turner classic movies, grade B, black and whites, with, you know, some guy in a trench coat in the collar something, he's got his head down, he goes, hey, hey, buddy, you want some action? Hey, come on with me. Uh, the, the, the counsel of the wicked uh, does not work that way at all, right? Uh, lost my spot, two seconds. The counsel of the wicked doesn't work that way. The meaning counsel is really tied to how you see your life's purpose. It's a word that speaks to purpose. It's a word that speaks to meaning and life direction. And wicked counsel promotes false thinking, false actions about the purpose for our lives. The wicked promote the world story of the Schlitz commercial and the good life centered, guess what, where, where's it centered? Centered on self, but God calls the righteous to join the story of the Savior who gave his life that we might embrace lives of, of, of loving sacrifice and service for other people in the glory of God. We see that the righteous man doesn't take the hook on the storyline. He knows the real story that informs his life story and, and how his life fits within the bigger story. Next, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Common purpose leads to common companions. We all know that. Guys like to fish hang together, bikers hang together. We all end up hanging with people that see life the same way that we do. But the righteous man is careful that his closest relationships are built with people of common vision, common dreams, common commitment to living out the calling that God has for all of us. Last, he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Wrong counsel leads to wrong relationships, which leads to wrong persuasions. Like the professor who holds the seat in the economics department or the Jewish elder who sits in the seat of the, of the city gates to give counsel, our ultimate allegiances will always lead to persuading others, always. Those who don't conform to our life narrative are mocked like the opening monologue of the late night comics. The world says, either conform or be scorned, but the righteous doesn't care. He lives for the affirmation and smile of another. Let's move to what the righteous man not just what he doesn't do, but what he does. Verse 2 tells us that his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. Think about the word delight. His delight's in the law of the Lord. It's not his commitment. 
his discipline, his duty. No, it's his delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And, of course, that, that provokes us and leads us to ask the question, what do I delight in? And like many of you who have dogs, I, I've got a living example in my home every single day of what delight looks like. I wake up in the morning and Buddy the Wonder Dog, our, our golden retriever, he is, his head's on the edge of the bed. He's got, he's got the ball in his mouth. His tail is wagging and he's saying, let's play, baby. Let's be together. What, what's going on? He's ready. He's ready to engage the day. And, and his day is all about me, honestly. Uh, he follows me everywhere. As I walk, whatever I may be doing, and I mean whatever I may be doing, Buddy wants to come along. He is, he is right here. When I go out the door and, and head to a meeting or head into the, down to the church, he is bummed. The worst bum of all is when he sees that I'm going to take a trip. I have to take trips periodically. Whenever he sees me pull out that black suitcase, he just goes over in the corner of the bedroom. He, he just collapses. <laughs> he, he's, he's, it, he's, it, it's devastating. He's already missing me. He's already heartbroken. But, but here's the amazing thing, and I don't know how this happens, whether he notices behaviors in the home. I'm sure before I come back from a trip, somebody's cleaning the dishes or, or whatever it may be. So he may see things. But all I know is the day that I'm coming back, he knows it, and he sits at the back door of the garage in the hallway. He sits and waits all day long until I come through that door. And when I open the door, it, it's, it is just so thrilling. It's so beautiful. Isn't it amazing how the Lord teaches us things through stupid animals or through, you know, this is a dumb dog. I tell him every day, you are a dumb dog. What is the matter with you? You should see things he does. But uh, when I walk in the door, he freaks. He freaks. He, he, he cries and he barks and he turns in circles and he runs down the hall and he runs back and he jumps on me and he licks me and he's just thrilled, you know. Uh, and, and so he is a dopey, dopey dog. But he thinks I'm awesome, okay? And that counts for something. <laughs> he, he delights in me. He delights in me. And he, he's a picture. He's a picture for me, if I'll notice, if I'll look, of what my delight in the Lord and his word is supposed to look like. He's a model of what longing for God's presence, attending to the voice of my master, should look like. And so here's the power question. This isn't, take, this isn't hard. What do you delight in? What do you delight in? What gets your tail wagging? What, what turns the lights on in your eyes? What is the topic that when it comes up, you're right there. You may not be somebody who likes to talk a whole lot, but this topic comes up, you're in the conversation. What do you delight in? What do you delight in? The righteous man delights 
in the law of the Lord. Now, when it says the law of the Lord, that, this, that doesn't mean just the Ten Commandments or the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. No, it, it, it's, it means more than that. It, it's comprehensive. It means that he delights in the whole Word of God, and he delights in the whole intent and application of God's Word. He delights in the kingdom. He delights in the words of the king, and he delights in the purpose of the kingdom. The righteous man, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He walks in the counsel of the Lord. His thoughts are God's thoughts. He loves God's word. He loves God's purpose. They're they're all his delight. And he meditates on God's word day and night. So the next point. We tend to think that uh, when, when we read the word meditate, we're good American Christians, and there's, there's, a, uh, there's a behavior that goes with that that we automatically think this applies to. And we fail at that, so there's condemnation in that, so we might as well expand the definition so we feel worse about it all. But, but when we think of meditating day and night, that's real simple. It's a discipline. And I have time with the Lord in the morning, and I have time with the Lord. I meditate on the Word a little bit before I go to sleep at night. And I think that's a great idea. I, I think that, that's really good practice uh, if there's life in that, and there should be life in that. But it really misses the whole idea of what, what the Scripture is saying here. To meditate on God's Word day and night means that God's Word is the lens and instruction for every context of life. God's word is to inform every stewardship that God's entrusted to us both day and night, right? We've got day stuff and we've got, we've got night stuff. The word meditate, I mean, it means a lot of things, but of course it means to think about something, to ponder, to reflect on things. But I want to introduce a new definition to meditate for us. It's the word imagination. Imagination. Say it with me. Imagination. I want, it to, I want it to hook in your thinking. To imagine is, is to look at something, to, to look and think about it from a whole new angle, isn't it? It's, it's to, to, to put on a new lens, the lens of the gospel the lens of God's purpose, his kingdom purpose in the world. And, and to really think, what are the ramifications of Christ in me, the hope of glory? What, what does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? What, what does it mean to follow Jesus as he gave his life for the world? What does it mean for me to follow in his steps? And, and rather than be a consumer uh, like everybody else around me and be looking at how I can make the most and leverage the opportunities and, you know, build a platform and you fill in all those silly things. But what does it mean for me to follow kingdom values of life for the glory of God and the good of others in sacrificial, costly ways? What does that look like? What does it look, what does it look like to stop and go through the various vocations of life and see them, ponder them, imagine them through a gospel of the kingdom lens. As I begin the day, how should I prepare myself 
as an image bearer of God, an image bearer of Christ. What does love look like in the very real stewardships and relationships that God's entrusted to me today? As I return home in the evening or as I prepare for others to come home in the evening, what does image bearing look like? What, how do I best give myself to those relationships and stewardships that God's entrusted to me this evening? God wants to invite us into a much deeper level of gospel imagination, to think more deeply about the biblical storyline and its implications for the people, the places, and the purposes that God's entrusted to every one of us. And it's easy, uh, it's, it's actually an easy thing to do. This is, I've never had an original thought in my life, so don't worry, this is not original. Um, in fact, I think it came from a book, God's Big Story, by a guy named Vaughn Roberts. But it's basically a simple outline of, of the gospel story. It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, the way God intended things to be, the ought, how things ought to be, creation. Fall, it's the reality of how things really are, broken. Uh, redemption. It's how things can change. Jesus paid the price for our sins. Jesus is redeeming and will, is unrelenting, unrelentingly committed to redeeming the whole world until his return. And then restoration. I've got true hope that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, that Jesus is going to reign over all of these things, and all of the errors, all the injustice, all of the brokenness is all going to be made beautiful again. You, you can take that storyline to the bank. But you can use that story as you engage whatever scenario you're in. It really helps us to just think clearly about the narrative that we're engaging. If we want to get into the real storyline that our life finds identity in, here's what it is. It's creation. How are things supposed to be here? What's it supposed to be like in our household? What's God's design there? What, what's it supposed to be like in, in the way that I engage the work that God's called me to do and the relationships there? What, what's, my, what's the scriptural understanding of a, a neighbor? How do I love and serve a neighbor? What does it look like? How do I renew my mind on that one so I can see the way things ought to be and can, can hopefully be in Christ? What does the ideal look like? How, how does this thing or this setting work? How does, how does it... How should it function if it functioned right, okay? Number two, the fall. What's broken? Probably a lot. Uh, what, what's broken in me? What's the sin in me or what's the sin in others that undermine what's supposed to be good here, right? What's systemically broken in the system that is, that, that that we need to understand so that we can be giving ourselves to making that thing right, whether it's home, work, neighbors, extended family, whatever it is. Number three, redemption. Jesus, the cross. What does it mean for me in this situation, here today, this morning, this afternoon, at home, at work? What does it mean for me to live as a new creation in Christ? 
But he means in Christ, he's new. The old is gone. I, I, I'm not, it's not just all about getting me to heaven. No, I'm, I'm called to live this here. I'm a new creation. What does that mean? How can I best reflect the realities of God's kingdom here? What does loving, rather than using people, leveraging my opportunities, consuming what does a gospel narrative look like? What does loving sacrifice for others for the glory of God look like here? Good questions. Restoration, number four. How does my confidence in the ultimate triumph of Christ strengthen me in the disappointments of my moments? How can I better model genuine hope that other people can watch? We should have true hope, right? The Lord will return. He's going to create new heavens and a new earth. It's going to happen. Take it to the bank, okay? So that's just, I, you know, I hope that's helpful. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Simple narrative to help evaluate. How am I looking at the situation? What's the story running in the backdrop here? Okay, point number three. What does the righteous life produce? What does it look like? Isaiah 40 tells us a very familiar truth that all flesh is like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. It's nothing. And yet, as we read Psalm 1, we see this righteous man who's somehow not like grass. In fact, he's, he's a tree. He is he's strong. This person is substantive, not like grass or weeds. This, the, this person is lasting, has impact, has, ha, creates long-term value. And it's interesting that the righteous person is not just like a tree. He's like a tree, what's the word? Planted. He's like a tree planted. This tree isn't just growing anywhere. It's not a wild tree, uh, independent, willy-nilly, free. It's not a free-flowing tree. This is a domesticated, planted tree. It, it's not what, you never see these, you go to Home Depot and you see these scrawny, ugly trees that are in pots and they've got the wheels around the bottom of them where you can just roll them wherever you want to roll them. Uh, this tree does not have wheels uh, to move around as it pleases. This, this tree is strategically planted exactly where the Lord wants it. The, it pleases the Lord that it's planted right where it is. And so here's another one of these great questions. Where has the Lord planted you? Are, are, you, plant, are you a planted tree? Are you rooted are you wild or are you domesticated? Have, have you put on the Lord's bit and bridle? Are you a wild stallion or are you domesticated? Are you trained? Can you heal like Buddy? Down, Buddy. He, he does pretty good, you know. Not, not all the time, but sometimes he does really good. He does uniquely good when I put the shock collar on him. <laughs> Very responsive. <laughs> okay. Okay, sorry. But, <laughs> distracted. Uh, are you rooted in Christ? 
Are you rooted? Have you made the priority to be a rooted man and woman in Christ or woman in Christ? Are you rooted in his word? Are you a spiritual wimp or are you substantive? Are you devoted? Do you delight in the word of God? Do you meditate on it day and night? Are you rooted among the people of God? Are you rooted in a local church? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. Jesus is building his church with rooted people. Are you here? When the church gathers, do you gather? When, you know, I'll spare you. You, you could f- fill in all the blanks. But are you rooted in the things that really matter? Are you rooted in your marriage? Are you always distracted with something else? Are you distracted with nonsense so that when you should be concentrating on your relationship with your husband or wife, relationship with your kids, you're distracted with some dumb, you know, hobby or something else. It just keeps you unengaged and floating. You're on wheels. You kind of go wherever you want. Are you rooted in your work? Do you see that single biggest chunk of your week as a calling from God to take seriously and to look through the lens in that thing and bring a kingdom life to bear and express the reign of Jesus in that work through your sacrificial loving service for the good of others and the glory of God? The, the righteous man is a rooted person. The tree's been planted by streams of water. Isn't it interesting that the word's plural? It's not just one stream. It's not just the Bible. It's multiple streams. That means if one stream seems to be a bit dry, there's others. There's streams. There's a plurality of, of means of care and grace that God has provided for us. There's streams this morning. When when the local church gathers on the Lord's Day every week, we come together, we we sing, we encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're, We're joined arm in arm. We remember who we are, what we're living for, what the story is, what our calling is to the specific stewardships that we'll face on Monday. We, we hear God's word where our minds are renewed, our spirits are fed. It's a critical means of God's care. It's a, it's a critical stream for us. You need that stream. Are, are you signed up for the summer classes? It's a stream. It's another opportunity to, to take a drink and be refreshed. Are you invited as community groups kick back in in August? Take root by the streams. Build relationships. Be known. I loved uh, your guys' testimony. It was just fantastic. Do, do you have a stream of genuine friends who are hopefully people that may be more mature in Christ than you are? You can grab a coffee with, grab a cheeseburger, hang out. Do you have a friend? The Lord wants you to have a friend. You need to be rooted by streams with genuine friends. Are your friends all idiots? Are your friends all people that are living by a totally different storyline? Don't throw those relationships away. We do not want to become cloistered and isolated people. No, I want to be friends with all of those people at work. I want to love and serve all those people. I want to care about all those people. But in terms of intimate, close friends, lifelines, streams of life, those guys, those ladies ain't it, right? It's not, it's not happening there having families over for lunch after church, having a barbecue, friends, family, community, streams of life. What's 
it's just good to evaluate. What are the streams that God has specifically given you to help equip you as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you growing as a disciple of Jesus? What are the streams of life that the Lord has provided? Are you aware of them? Are you making the most of them? Are you pursuing them? Are you sinking your roots into the stream? Or are you passive? Are you asleep at the switch? Helping you, equipping you as a disciple of Christ. Is your marriage a challenge? What, what, what are you doing to draw near to the streams of life to help your marriage? Are you involved in re-engage? Get involved in re-engage. There's a stream for you. You're parenting, you're grandparenting. You want to learn how to be a better gospel kingdom witness in your family and to make it work? Come to one of the classes uh, Wednesday night as a worker. Find a guy who's living out the gospel and seems to be further than you. Hang out, grab lunch, learn, grow, get books. Don't be passive. The streams don't do any good unless we sink our roots in them. Okay? This tree grows. It bears fruit in every season. It's productive. It's not productive all the time, but it's productive in season. It's, it's regularly productive. Its leaf doesn't wither. It means it's beautiful and it provides shade for others all the time. Whether it's, whether it's uniquely fruitful or not, there's life, there's peace there, there's shade there. And all he does prospers. Now, that word prosper is another one of those hot words in our culture, you know, in terms of the the grab it and blab it, uh, God, no, it's blab it and grab it. Is that what it is, the prosperity gospel? Sorry, it's a little coarse, but it's all right. Uh, does, does prosper mean to be happy, clappy all, all day long? No, of course not. Does, does it mean that you're going to be rich? Probably not. Probably not. But it means that you'll prosper and flourish in the things that matter most. You're going to prosper and flourish in what matters, your relationship with Jesus, your alignment in his kingdom callings and stewardships, in loving the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, loving your neighbor in sacrificially loving ways that brings glory to God and causes people to say, what, I thought Christians were just hypocrites and, and just, you know, really boring. Man, this guy really brings value to the office. That guy's always serving me. He's always helping me. Man, this place would never be the same if that, if that person, that man or woman weren't here. That's, that's what we're called to be. Shocking phrase. Brief. The wicked are not so. Not much said. The wicked are not so. The Latin Vulgate of, of this verse says, it, it, it's, it's terrifying, really. It says, uh, not so the wicked. Not so. Uh, I don't want a double negative declared over my life by God when I stand before him. I don't want to hear, not so, not so. And that ought to produce the fear of the Lord in us to really examine our own lives and be sure that we're authentic it also ought to provoke us to really notice and care about the people around us and, and build genuine friendships, not just to build a bridge so that I can talk at them, but to love people the way that Jesus loved people and gave his life on the cross. He loved us. He pursued us. 
And if we're going to be like him, we're, we're going to start to act like that. In the end, the wicked's like chaff. <sighs> I was looking at a, a YouTube video of how they, how they winnow the grain. You know, they throw the grain up in the air and the wind goes. There's not even a pile of chaff next to the grain. Now, the, the chaff is gone. It, 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 it is worthless. It's Chaff is rootless, lifeless, leafless, worthless, dead. It's completely unlike a tree. And verse 6 is probably the most profound phrase in all of Psalm 1. And I hope that you'll, you'll look at this with me. This, this has affected me as I, I've studied it these last weeks. And, and here's the phrase. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And this word to know is the Hebrew word yada. It's, it is a, a complex, deep, intricate Word and, and it's it's difficult to interpret, yada, to know, but just to give it my you know lame attempt. Let, let me try and communicate what this word means. To know, yada. It means to know, to understand something so deeply that it provokes a sense of personal responsibility. It's to see, to know, to feel in a way that whatever you're looking at affects who you are and produces a sense of ownership and personal responsibility that requires action. It requires action. It's a deep heart thing. Yada. And it's to see the true reality of life, to see the true reality of a situation so clearly, so intimately, so as to feel complicit, to, to feel a sense of responsibility for love's sake, for love's sake to care so deeply that something must be done. It's what Jesus did for you and me. He saw, he knew, yada. He owned our desperate plight. He took responsibility. For love's sake, he bore our sins as our substitute on the cross. And the, the power behind this righteous man isn't in any of the things that we've covered so far. The power of this righteous man is he's a new creation in Christ. There, there's really only one blessed man. His name's Jesus. He's the one who faithfully rejected the counsel of the wicked to honor his father. He delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night, didn't he? He was the one nailed to the tree 
for our sins, that streams of water would flow out to wicked people like you and me, that we'd be transformed, that we could become new creations in Christ who not only have our sins washed away, as awesome as that is, who not only have the hope of heaven, who now begin to also to live, to model, to declare the gospel of Jesus in every stewardship of life until his kingdom fully comes on earth as it is in heaven. The yada God of the gospel narrative calls you and I to a yada life of seeing, knowing, and acting for love's sake. The world mocks, the world says, yada, 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 and people live a life that means nothing. Each of us are going to have to choose which path we choose. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.